0: I want to throw out this question in, in the very start of it. Why would we even study how to read the Bible? Don't we know how to read? Doesn't that mean that we know how to read? So this is kind of like, I'm going to prime the pump a little bit, but why even study this? Why are you guys here? Why are we taking an hour, four weeks in a row to say this is how we study the Bible? Um, one of the examples I think is, is a brilliant way to, to put it is, um, it's like a newspaper. There are different sections, but the opinion section of the newspaper is read differently than the um, you know, sports column, which is read differently than the classifieds, which is read differently than the funnies. They're all the same newspaper, but they're all read differently. Um, within that context, like the Bible is somewhat similar, where there's different forms, there's different types, there's different ways that it is written, different authors, different centuries, different locations and situations going on. Why is it important that we study how we read this? Um it's just yeah. Go. I can't help but think of uh I've got a friend in Texas who teaches Spanish to Spanish kids. And it's like we we study English. We we know English but there's so much more to learn within a language. Within the library. There's, a, there's more to learn, yeah. I was just talking to um, Brian Hare. I don't know if you guys know him. He's a Fuller student right now. And he was telling me about, the the question to him was, what's one of the most interesting things you've learned in seminary? And his response was, the Tower of Babel. Really? I mean, it's like a chapter long. It's Genesis 11. It's really short. And he says, yeah, the entire thing is written as um, kind of like a, a chiasm where the way that the person that speaks is chiastic in one direction. And then the way the Lord responds is chiastic in the original Hebrew lettering in reverse order of that. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And that's the chapter. And it's one of those things like, you don't study that. You're not, <laughs> like, I would never read that in my English Bible and go, wow, there is, there's something deeper right here that I'm missing. You know, um, any other comments, points? Why, why would we even study this? You're hitting all my favorite buzzwords. Who it's written for, who it's written to, and then the context of it. Like, if, we, if we're not, and we have to be trained in all of those things. Like, I think so often it's, well, just what does the Bible say to you? Which is a great question. Lectio Divino, sitting, soaking, meditating. What is this? How do I relate to this? Yes, but it's um, exactly that. Who, who is it written to? What is the context that is going on of, of the culture, of the time, of the author, of the, of the recipient of the letter, but also the, the context within that verse of, like, is this really the verse that it's saying? Um, one of the examples that we gave last fall, if any of y'all were here, was Matthew 18, um, this wonderful scripture, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. That's a great verse, right? I mean, we get to a prayer meeting, let's fire that one up and go off like a rocket, because Jesus is in the house, because... Wait, he wasn't there before, or I'm not like, wait, I thought he was in me, but now he's here because there's two of us, or what on earth? Where contextually, what he's talking about is relatively church discipline. Correct them in this way, and then correct them in this way, and bring someone along. And then as the whole church, for wherever two or three are gathered, there I am also. He's basically saying, my authority for your discipline within the church is there when the church authority is in agreement about something. Contextually, like... We, we miss that completely in our charismatic prayer meetings if we do not see the context in which it's being written. You know, maybe I'm going off the wall here, but I, I wanted to know how do you guard yourself from knowing the Bible and staying in knowledge mm-hmm. and missing out on what the Spirit is telling you? Okay, great question. I'm going to pose that to this whole class because we can all have different views. How do we guard ourselves from knowing, from like kind of pure study, and then from missing out on what the Spirit might be telling us? Kind of that. That study side, the intellect, and the—I don't know if you want to say like the experiential, the fresh word—the Lord is speaking to me in this moment, in this text. Is that? Let something else. And the reason the I I've been I find the Spirit more in less knowledgeable countries than here. Therefore, I have come to the conclusion that one of the things that stands. Mm-hmm, right. One of the things that keeps us from experiencing Christ in a bigger way is our knowledge. Is Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I prayed in the beginning. Is that not some of what Paul is saying, where knowledge puffs up but love builds up? Like, if I remember going through Bible college, and I don't want to say, like, yay me, but I remember getting to the end, and you had all of these students who were fairly jaded about the study of Scripture without God's presence in it. And not because I had everything figured out, but because I desired God. I would spend probably about an hour every evening just doing a prayer walk around campus, praying for the campus, praying for all these things. And it was was as though in college kids were given logs of knowledge and understanding and just wood he, they stacked the wood on every class every test every paper it was just more more understanding more logs for the fire but they were never entering into an experiential like and this is god who actually is the flame like one plants another's waters but god makes it grow there's this there's this understanding of like it's important for us to to store up, to seek wisdom, to seek knowledge, just to see this. Because God has put it in the scriptures. He's put these forms and structures and all these things there in the word. But if it, does, if it never enters into, and now let me take this into a God who I can really only know through experience. Um, my dad always used to say, like, Hey, Evan, explain to me what chocolate tastes like. Good luck. Right, it's, it's something that is experienced, and you can go, well, it's chocolatey. Well, chocolate in itself, it's like you can't use the word for the definition. And you can really understand what it tastes like by actually tasting it. It's like saying, I know everything about God is love, but unless we enter into an experience where we are understanding in the whole of our person, and in our intellect, with our affection, um, even with our bodies in a physical way, like the love of God, I don't think we're really knowing God. Um, it is this tension that we're going to walk, like, for this class, and I think for all of life. Um, I don't know if it's my next slide. It could be. Yeah, it totally is. Great. Um, that we, we need both. And we're going to be walking. Our, one of our professors in the school, he always did this. You've got to live in the tension. Live in it. Because that's what's going to keep us like on, on a good path. Not falling into the ditch of one way and saying, it's only experience, and who cares if I've never studied it? I'm experiencing like crazy. Yeah, but your experience is so off-base that it's not carrying you through the full length of the faith. What happens when the experience dries up or when God is not in that season, but you're saying, I need to be fired up. Or on the other side, where I'm only engaging with him in my intellect and it never affects my person or my emotions or my past or in an experiential sort of way. Um, Some of the ways that I've come to to explain what we're going to be doing here is architecture versus interior design. Um, the idea that we can walk into this room, even, isn't this room beautiful? With its cement walls that have been whitewashed. I know. We picked the nicest room in the building just for you guys. But you can walk into a house. Think of the nicest house that you've ever been in and how beautifully decorated it was and the colors that they picked for the walls and the ways that the windows opened towards the view and whatever it was. And you can easily see these things. It's this I can open my Bible to any chapter, any book, and easily see what it's saying. But within that, there is a form and a structure that has been put into that book that holds it up, that creates story or narrative, that that presents its theme. There is there is architecture that's that frames that, and then it's all filled in with these wonderful words and details that actually are what we see. And if we only study the words but never study the structure of it, we're going to miss out on some of the really cool things that God has said. Look, I'm a God of order. Look, I'm a God of intellect. Man, alive. I've presented this in such a way that when you see the structure, you'll understand some of the meaning. It's really cool. Um, one of the others is panning for gold versus mining for gold. Um, I think a lot of times that question as far as like how do we make sure we're not just studying and never really letting it um, like affect us is this idea of one of these things will probably be easier to you. Either you're the intellectual, God has made you that way, and you love being lost in thought philosophy was your favorite class in school, and so on and so forth. And it's the easy thing. And then there's the harder thing, which is to say, okay, I'm going to enter in to some sort of experience or meditation. I'm going to engage in some way my person and not just my mind in whatever the practice might be of the faith. That, that thought and practice back and forth. And I feel as though panning for gold can represent whatever's easier to you. I am naturally inclined to be more, man, let's experience God in this moment. Let's have a prayer time. Let's play the Hillsong United. Let's worship. Let's go after God. And let's end up just basking in the glory at the end of this prayer time. It's easy. It's like I can walk up to a river and just kind of scoop some dirt up and be like, okay, I got some gold. But the goal of the goal is gold in that moment. And then mining for gold, it's the thing that's not as easy and it's not seen at the first. You have to, You have to dig deep. You have to put structure in you have to blow shafts you have to do all these extra things versus just digging in the dirt and putting in the sleuth Um, but the the end goal of both of them is gold like if you're panning or if you're mining i think for us the end goal whether we are engaging our person and experience or we are engaging in intellect and study the end goal is the same and when we understand that they both help us get to it. And if, we want, if we're wanting to know for the sake of knowing, then that is a knowledge that puffs up. But if we are wanting to know for the sake of, I love God and I desire to know God, therefore I will not just pray, but I will also study and do research. I will not just go on the retreat, but I will also sign up for you know a class or read an extra book, whatever it is. Because to say that I'm going to know God only in the way that That I naturally is easy for me is to miss out on the full scope of how God has made Himself to be understood. Um, Attention, mining gold. We need to do both. Uh, Puzzle pieces in the picture. You guys ever tried to do a puzzle without the box? Off snap. It's pretty tough. Hermeneutics is a lot like this concept where if you had a puzzle, you had all the little pieces, all the little verses, but you didn't have the picture to know how they could fit together then you, you might get pretty frustrated or you might just say, man, this piece leans a lot to me. I love the colors and I love this piece's shape. It's one of those cool ones where there's no pointy outs. It's all just the inroads and how great is that piece. Um, but it's that picture, it's the box that gives us a structure to say, this is how it's framed. So let's do the frame on the outside. If you're a puzzled master, you do the frame first, right? Any puzzlers in the house? That's what I'm talking about. Cold winter day, nice cup of cocoa, good puzzle. <laughs> but doing without the picture, it, it's if you're trying to complete the puzzle, it's frustrating. But the picture is the guide to this is how this can work out. Um, hermeneutics, the understanding, rules of interpretation, questions to ask the text when we're approaching it, are very similar in saying this is how when we come to these pieces that are verses or sentences or paragraphs... This is how we can see them being pieced together. And so we're giving a whole picture, like an outward, this is how the structure works. And then we're, we're getting into the, the minute little verse. Um, and both of them, I think the psalmist talks about, it, I store up your word, I hide your word in my heart. I wonder if the purpose of study is not to like, man, I'm going to get to know everything about you but not know you actually. I'm not going to take that experiential step of faith to kind of engage in the person. But it's, what we're doing here is the study thing is storing up this understanding of God so that when we come to him, when we approach him, when we worship in service or when we have our, our Bible studies with one another, when we're in our marriages even, when we have friendships, the purpose of all of it is to store it up so that we know how to engage with God and his people correctly. And, and all of that is, is just to say like, God, this is who you are. This is how you've structured life. And I'm going to take these things and engage with them in that way. So, um, a little bit of preface of this is important to study. As, as we dig in, we're going to focus on Jonah for this entire month. Um, is anybody a Facebook friend with me? Did anybody see my question earlier in this? Okay. That was a great question. Man alive. People are passionate about Jonah. <laughs> he got eaten by fish. He did not get eaten. It was a parabolic story. Well, let me tell you a C.S. Lewis quote. Well, I got Henry Nowen on my side. Like, <laughs> That's a great question. Um, but... It, it spawns off of, I think, this question. And all of hermeneutics, all of, kind of contextual understanding does. Where is meaning found? Assumptively, and I think this is a fairly safe assumption, but we can even talk through this one. Are these authors of the scripture merely, merely writing a historical account so that we can know our history? Are they seeing something happen and just saying, Oh, this is what happened. Order? I'm just writing it in the order that it happened. Meaning? No meaning. I'm just letting you know what happened. Or are they writing in such a way as there is something that they're trying to tell us? Like, did we hold on to the history of Jonah or Matthew or Genesis for 2,000 plus years? Because we just wanted to know what happened and whatever. Or is there actual meaning in what they're writing? Any thoughts on that one? I kind of like answered it, so bait in the line though. If there is meaning, one, is there meaning? And two, where is that meaning found? Is it in the reader? It's whatever it means to me. I am the reader. I decide what it means to me in this moment as I'm reading it. Perfect. Is it the text? The text is that what's been preserved. It's what's been handed down to us. We find our meaning, not in me, but I look at the text and see what happens and what the meaning is. Or is it in the author? Because that's going to be the trend. Any time anything's been written to you guys, it's going to be in that flow. Somebody, an author or a speaker or an artist or some sort of like that, did some sort of work. We're going to say text because we're working with the Bible here, but it could be a painting or a picture. What does this picture mean to you? You guys ever had that artist? What does this mean to you? Well, what does it mean to you? Like, oh, Okay. Author, text, and then reader. So the person creating the whatever it is, whatever medium, the medium itself, or the person receiving that. Where is meaning found? Arguments with this in this room. Ready, go. When you talk about the author, mm-hmm. are you talking about who wrote it or who inspired it? Who wrote it or oh, when I'm talking about the author, <laughs> am I talking about who wrote it or who inspired it? Class discussion. Ready, go. I don't. I don't want to be up here just telling you all the answers. I, I have thoughts. They're great thoughts, I'm sure. But are we talking when we're specifically? Let's because this is a biblical question because we talk about authorial intent and who inspiration and all that stuff. Julie. I would say both. Every author was inspired you see how the Both because every author is inspired by the word of God, but you can see how they're 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 all different. I mean, yeah. I was just telling someone beforehand, if you're a Greek 101 student, you do not start with Paul's letters. Paul was the smartest of the smart. He was the trained of the trained. And his letters, as far as Greek um, grammar and uh, just context and stuff, is very difficult. You start with John, which we're doing in service right now, because John was simply schooled, very simple words, and uh, he Repeated a lot of himself. If you are in God, you are in love. If you are in love, you are in God. If you could love God's people, God's love is in you. And you just look at that. You go. He used ten words for a whole paragraph. This is really easy to study. So different authors, but all of it we say is inspired by God. Okay. Any other comments? When we're talking about authorship, who who are we saying? Come on. Right. And assumptively, the author is inspired in some way, like whether they're painting or writing or something. There, they are. There's kind of like a action reaction thing. Man, this really just happened, so I'm going to write this book, you know, or I'm inspired in this day to paint this something. There's there's inspiration, and with biblical authors, could we argue that the inspiration is God in some way, like? That his message. Okay, I'm going to go to this question, too, as far as inspiration goes. Is it... <laughs> I guess the, the difference between inspiration and dictation. Is God leaning over their shoulder and dictating every word that they're saying? Or are they being inspired with such a truth, with such an insight, whatever, that um, we, we have recognized that in tradition... I'm going to buzz some words right there and say, like, this is the word of God. This is true in its complete self. Inspiration, dictation. You guys, I don't know if you've thought through these things, but we're going to think through them right now. (laughs) Only if you were at the lecture last week on Sunday night. Um, And imagination. I mean, because well, that really comes into not how... Did it come to us, but how are we understanding? Like, we need our imagination to understand. And they're, I mean, if they're being inspired, there's probably some imagination involved in that too. Like, Book of Revelation, how could you not? But um, with these questions, I want to ask them in this way too. And I'm going to start in the back because you hopefully know where I'm going with all of these. What is the, the cause and effect if we, the reader, are the, the one who determines what meaning is? Is it dangerous? Is it fine? Whatever, dude. That's the age we live in. It's whatever it means to me. And you can't tell me what it means because it doesn't mean that to me. What's the, what does what, what that cause? What, what would be the long-term effect of that, especially when it comes to Scripture and faith in God? We think all of Scripture is for our personal benefit. There's no story beyond ourselves. We think all of Scripture is for our personal benefit. There's no story beyond ourselves. It's me. This is my story, and it... It comes into me, I don't bend into it. That's good. Right. You you lose I mean you might gain something for yourself, but you lose whatever the, the original truth and context was within the scriptures. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) There'd be no way to be on the same page. Expound. See how that's outplayed within the world right now. Like, huh? No knowable truth. What is truth? (laughs) I mean, you get into these questions because, well, truth is, is it in in me? Do I determine what is true? You say it's the blue chair, but to me it's... More aqua because i 'm colorblind, but whatever right like where where, does, where is truth contained? is uh, Glenn uses this this picture all the time. Does the Bible stand as an authority over me, or do I stand as an authority over the scriptures? and if the meaning is found in me, it becomes me being the authority over the scriptures, and the truth is only as far as what I determine it is dangerous so i 'm so deaf you have to speak loud in this class that's <laughs> Everybody's got the truth. I don't know if you guys have seen all the uh, left-behind rapture stuff going around these days. But it's true. No, this is what I think. No, this is what I think. Oh, well, I have a chart. Well, I have the scriptures. Well, I... Oh, my gosh. Is there one truth that we're going after? Um, I, I, yes. Yes to all of this. Anybody else? Why, what are the cause and effect of me, the individual, being the source and the determinant of meaning? Say, say it again. I'm, I, I seriously, I, I, I say this graciously, but I can't hear very well. <laughs> yeah, you're totally fine. <laughs> and a talking problem. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I was in a study
1: about the last week of Jesus. It mm-hmm.
0: uh, fascinating. But something that spoke to me greatly uh, was how, the, how you have to have a grasp of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Like binding and loosing. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand the binding and loosing that took place in the pre system, system, you don't understand the authority. Yeah. In the new. Yeah. That is so good. That is so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As we were discussing that, the Holy Spirit started to witness to me powerfully mm-hmm. in my spirit about the authority. Come on. In Christ Jesus. Come on. And it is so powerful. And we aren't even tapping it. Mm. And so that's what I'm trying to say. You have to have the range. Right. You have to have the... No. It's so good. It's so good. I'm going to recap, and you can correct if there's anything I missed. She, she's going through a, a, a New Testament study, and they're going through the last week of Jesus, and they were getting into the notion that you can't really, really understand it without understanding the Jewish history. The, the, the significance of what Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, and more specifically, even how he is doing it, the words that he is saying, they, they gain their authority, authority for kind of doctrine and new covenant all those things because of the way that it is precedented by the old testament if okay perfect perfect <laughs> nailed it. it it is so true it is um narrative flow you guys have all seen a movie i'm assuming what's a great epic movie any any epic movie say that again I'm going to ask for one that most of us have seen. (laughs) I've seen it, but I don't think that's probably the the course of the whole. Lord of the Rings. That's a great one. That's usually what I default to, but I wanted to see if we wanted to branch out. (laughs) Lord of the Rings. If you knew nothing about Lord of the Rings and you jumped right in and all of a sudden Samwise was picking up Frodo and I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. What? That's the corniest line ever. Like, Where is the context for that? But... Just like the New Testament, if you're understanding the old, or in that moment, if you're understanding the entire lead-up of the, the narrative arc until that point, that is huge. I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. You know what the ring is meant. You know the weight that it's carried. You know what he's been through. I hate the Twin Towers because it is so dark. But you get to this Return of the King, where Frodo, like Sam is carrying him. It is powerful because you're saying he's been to this darkness and the weight of carrying that ring. And now he's being picked up and he's being carried to this final leg by like this, this fellowship and this friend. Like That is unreal. Have you guys ever sat and watched all three of them right in a row? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> we all have time for that, I'm sure. But, but how similar is that too? Like If you see it in a, in a straight flow, you might catch things you didn't otherwise because you, you fragmented it off into chunks of a story where you see it all fuller together going, wow. This is huge. This climactic point is climactic because it's been built up by everything that precedes it. Jesus' points within the New Testament, the way that he ushers in the New Covenant, the way that he talks about the Sermon on the Mount and how it parallels um, the, the giving of the law in Moses, like it has climax. It, it, it has elevation because it's been built up too. Um, the context, and like we're saying, the context exactly, gives it, It gravitas, it gives it weightiness and authority and all those things. So so the reader is, it's dangerous. It's dangerous if it's just me because we won't be on the same page. You might become a church that, I don't know, has too many denominations and then fractions of denominations and heresy and stuff because it's it's up to us to determine what it really means. Um, And then it could be found in the text. I think the danger of the text, um, there's a few things I want to get to. We have about 20 minutes left. Um, the danger of the text is just like I was saying, kind of in the beginning, if we're reading a newspaper and the authority is in the text, it means what it means because it's in the Bible. And we're all reading it the same way. Could I be reading the opinion article wrongly? I don't know. Any Fox News fans in the house? I'm just gonna use this as an example because I I totally was the ignorant one when I was watching this. Any Fox News? Okay, you don't want a minute, it's fine. Fox News all the time. I used to work at Focus on the Family. That's the only thing they showed in the gym there. It was crazy. You felt like a sinner when you wanted to turn on Everybody Loves Raymond. This <laughs> is okay. Um, but they had this, they were, it was, I think it was Bill O'Reilly or something. And his comment was, oh, everybody knows this isn't a news show. This is an opinion show. And I sat there going, I didn't know that. Bill O'Reilly's not a news anchor. He's an opinion like host. Whoa. But if the authority is in the text, it's in purely what they're saying and not what they're trying to mean by what they're saying, then we will miss that. We will miss in the scriptures that poetry and story and fiction narrative versus real narrative, they're all different and they carry a different weight on them because it's all this, well, no, the authorities in the text. It's not in the author and what they were trying to say. It's in whatever they actually said. So it doesn't really mean. Or married people in the room, even friends, Probably all of us. Ever had that moment in life? Yeah, that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. It's not what you said. It's how you said it. Because there was tone and there was form and it's it's different. You guys ever had that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But if it is, if the authority is the text, then it's not how it was said. It's just what was said. And we can totally go off and be awry on our understanding of the message. Now the meaning is found in the author, though. Whether it's our good God as the divine inspirer of the text, or it's an apostle who's writing a letter, if it's an Old Testament prophet or writer of some sort who's writing down parts of history, what is the what is the power in the author having kind of the final say on what the meaning and the authority within that? Like, what does that cause us to do as readers? The author is the one who knew the original intent. And we, like, have to just, like, we're, like, filtering everything through that. What do you mean by filtering? Like, as a Christian reader, I have the Holy Spirit within me who can guide and direct. Right, amen. And, Agreed. Like, we have Mm-hmm. Lord, but we need to know, like, that background to get, like, the big picture concept and say, like, this is, you know, like, back to your example, like, this is what Jesus meant when he, like, this is why it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You can just read something on its own without knowing some of the other right. stuff. Here's some context. Oh! Like, time-blowing. Yeah, Any, anyone else? <laughs> I've heard of people uh, that have visible islands where people just got one thing and had no knowledge of all the, the heavy beat work that you're using, the uh, sublimation. <laughs> yeah, no one. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know nothing about that kind of stuff. The yes read is, they practice it, it happens. And what? Right. I the Holy Spirit. it's a big back and forth I, w- I would wonder if there's anyone else I'm going to jump in <laughs> uh, do, 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 d- d- summarize both of these points <laughs> Amen. Like, If we're looking at this, the reader, the reader is the one in which meaning and understanding is trying to get to. They're trying to reach us. They're not just saying it to say it. The, the text or whatever the mode of communication is, that is it is just that. It, it's a mode. It is this coffee cup that holds the coffee. And it's the way to deliver the message. But the meaning is really coming from the author. They are trying to get something across. They're using words to do it, which is great. And they're trying to get it to us. But the meaning is not determined in me. It's the one who it originated in, God as a first, through a prophet, through an apostle, through a, a Jew, a, a Greek, or whomever it was. So, one of the okay, yep. Van Gogh Starry Night. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, Starry Night. If you know what blue means to him, you know what it means even more. Starry Night. Mind blown. He painted it from his insane asylum window. It was the view out his window when he was kind of not quite locked up, but locked up for being crazy. And there's so much that goes into this that you goes, wow. Okay. Right. I'd say your meaning really comes on your sheet. You've got little double arrows here, which is that Holy Spirit interaction. And so the meaning comes, it's transmitted between the author of the text by way of the Holy Spirit, and transmitted between the text and the reader by way of the Holy Spirit. So good. Amen. Right. So So good. Yeah, and that, that would delve into this question of how much did the authors, especially when we get to like prophetic books of some sort, how much did they understand what they were writing? How much? How, example, this is, an, this is an easier one. I mean, it goes, there's a rabbit hole that is, can go on for every book, pretty much. The author of, uh, I believe it's an Exodus, um, generally, ex, uh, Moses. Moses wrote Exodus. Exodus has instruction, and I might be a little bigger because of Numbers or Deuteronomy, but it's Moses, regardless. He's writing instruction for kings. This is what the king should do, should have and not have, should act and not act. In the time that Moses was writing it, was there a king? So is God telling him? And there, no, the answer is no, exactly. <laughs> I, I saw a head shake, yes. No, there was no king when Moses was writing, but is he understanding that there will be a king? Is he understanding that it's a king over Israel as a whole? Is this the king who we see then as, as God or Jesus? Is this king as in a king over our country and it's a man? Like What, what is he understanding and how much of the inspiration that he's getting to write these instructions? Is he understanding the full grasp of it? Does he understand more than he's letting on to? Like, that is a rabbit hole that we can go down for any book. But it's true. It's one of those, regardless of how much they're knowing, there's an obedience that they're writing. And do they understand the fullness of it? No. But meaning, we will miss out on and be divided by if we do not try to at least seek the degree to which the authorial intent was being written. To the context of the day. But within, I will say this, within faith and doctrine we will be unified if we seek it within the authorial intent. I, writing in this context, at this time, in this situation, I'm writing you this. And my intent in it, even if he doesn't understand the full weight of it. Because it's this, there's a singular interpretation with countless applications. Sure. But my application is not the full meaning of the text. There is a singular meaning, a singular interpretation of this is what was going on, this is what he knew or didn't know. Then it works its way out into application of how then does that get into my life, and the Spirit is involved in all of that. Um, As we go forth, I'm sorry, it went off my computer. Oh, MacBook, I love you. Let me count the ways. What is it showing you up there? Oh, wow. It totally went away. Um, we're going uh, to ask some questions, and I think all of these are on your handout, so we'll be fine with not actually having that set up right there. Um, we, we generally talk about four steps of Bible study methods. Bible study methods is just a, a simpler way of saying hermeneutics. Like, how do we understand the Scriptures? Um, and on your thing, seeing, understanding, sharing. Pepin, can you make this big for me? Huh? Oh, you got a baby. I'm sorry. You hang out with Lincoln. That's weird. Anyway, um, uh, seeing, understanding, uh, sharing, and responding. And it, it is this thing of we are to see the text, kind of dig into it, see how it's formed, see how it's structured, all of those, those parts of it. We are to understand it, then ask some questions. understand some meaning behind it. Share it. The Bible, shocking, was not really meant to be read within a one-on-one context you and God. That is part of it. But if we do not as a whole come together as a family, as a couple, as friends, whatever, we will miss out, or we will not be mm, refined by like a fuller understanding of saying, like, we as a whole can agree on this. Um, and then responding. And that's where the, that Holy Spirit like, facet of it really is. Like, If we know, yep, I've seen it, I've understand it, I've even taught it, but I'm not responding to it. Um, we're missing kind of the power and the purpose of the scriptures. So if you flip over your little sheet, these are the basic ABCs of um, questions, and then we're going to just kind of run through the types. Um, there, there is so much power in knowing the context of a verse. We did this last fall. I don't know if anybody was here. But specifically, we're going to apply all things to Jonah, but I just want to start with this to kind of clear your mind a little bit. Asking, who is writing? Who are they writing to? When are they writing? And do those sorts of answers, potentially, if we're looking for the meaning, what was he trying to say? What message was he trying to encapsulate in this poem, in this story, in this history? Whatever the type is, Will that help us understand what he was trying to say by answering those questions? So I want you to think right now. You can even close your eyes. It's a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. And you are writing the book of Genesis. Who are you? You guys can shout this one out if you know who wrote Genesis. Moses. All right. My name is Moses. Who am I writing to? Who, who on earth am I writing this this history account from the it starts in the garden and creation and ends in in Egypt to Joseph dying? Who am I telling this story to? That that was weak sauce. Who? The Jews. Israel. Yeah, the people of Israel yes, we get to benefit. But he is the author. I don't know if he was thinking in 2014, the year of our Lord, there's going to be a class of 30-some studying my book. Like he, he may have had that idea. But my name is Moses, and I am writing to these people. Where and when am I writing? What is the context in which I was able to take a little bit of time, maybe I had a few years, to write down the history Any guesses? Desert. The desert? What, what desert? Uh, in between Egypt and, uh, the land between so I'm writing to a few million Jews in the desert. The story of their people and their history. Okay. That makes sense to me. He had 40 years. Like, that makes tons of sense. He had some mountaintop experiences before when it was just him. But then he had some more when he was in the desert, Herod, all that. If this is the case, if if I am writing to this people who is wandering in the desert for 40 years, quail and manna, a generation dying off, a generation coming in, why am I writing? Does any of that help? Why could Moses possibly be writing to the Jews at this point in time these certain things? So there was a written account. Why is that important to them? I I, I seriously am deaf. They were too quick to forget. They needed to remember. So I'm going to write it down. He wasn't allowed to enter the Promised Land, so he had to tell them where it all, where it came from. Anything else? Writing out of obedience. Writing out of obedience. God told me to, so I'm going to, I'm going to copy this down. To remind them that Egypt is not where they began and potentially nor where they end. That's not going to be their final resting place. If you look... I mean, Genesis is 40-something, 50 chapters long. It is chapter 12, according to us, where the whole story of the the people of God began because that's where Abraham gets his call, the land I will show you. To me, I mean... Hey, people, I know you're in the desert and you're dying off. Don't forget who your God is. Don't forget the power and the promise that was made to you. Like, the, the, the notion that these people are wandering and, and a generation dying off and a generation rising up, and Moses is, is, is there saying, I need to remind these people, or God is telling them, hey, you need to remind these people who they are. Let's back that up a little bit. Who I am as God. Who I am as God. Isn't that where it starts? It doesn't start with who you are as the people. The people starts with who I am as God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spends six days creating and then filling. Creating formless and void and then structuring it into creation and life. Waters and land and then filling those things creating light and then separating it into seasons by sun and moon and stars. He is a God who creates. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Explain the... Tell what that word. Blood. blood? The blood. The blood. Okay. The blood. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm really struggling at my age and almost on the other side. Mm hmm. Um, I really want to grasp yeah. right. it. Why? The... Why? The blood. And then the whole sacrifice system. And that's where it starts. And yeah right it's where it starts. You want to look at blood, the first blood that cries out from the ground Cain, Cain yeah, it's so true yeah i I don't we i don't oh, I don't think any of the scriptures will understand the fullness of it and for eternity right I mean, we can study, but i. I think even understanding the blood, it will come back to this. If we are understanding just like what we just this little exercise we did, who is writing? Who are they writing to? When are they writing? And then that gives us a context of potentially why they're writing. When we come to the text with certain questions, the questions might not be answered, because that's not the purpose to which they're giving us. Uh, story or insight or whatever. So, for Genesis, when we come with the question of, was it six literal days of creation or was it six figurative days of creation? Was Moses trying to, in circa 4000 BC, answer the question of 21st century, was it literal days or was it figurative days? Or was he reminding the people of God wandering in the desert, this is who I am. I am the creator. And that being the creator, God sets up this promise in 12 to Abraham. And I'm faithful to my promise. And look at how I've been faithful to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and Joseph and the tribes. And you came down during the famine. And now I'm bringing you back up into the promised land. That, the meaning within understanding the context and the authorial intent, we, I'm not going to tell anybody. Yeah, it was six literal days or it was six figurative days. Because I do not think that Moses is telling anybody it was six literal days or figurative days. He was presenting a story with themes, with numbers, and on the seventh day he rested. And biblically, the number seven is a a number of completion and wholeness. He's not telling us, it it could have taken a thousand days, and he whittles them down to present a meaning. Now, does that make Moses a liar? No. Does that make me... uh, crock of a pastor and a theologian, because I'm not going to say it was six literal and be hardcore on that, or six figurative and hardcore on that. No, it's, it's asking, who is writing, when, where, why? And when we answer those questions, the rest of them might not matter. We might not be able to see the answer, because they might not have been answering it in the first place. I think we see something similar to this in the teachings of Jesus, mm-hmm. where he taught parables, and the disciples would come back and say, What does that mean? You're right. Because to some of you, truth has been revealed, and to some of you, it hasn't. Yes. And so I think in these situations where there's not a particular answer, it pushes us to go to God and to ask questions. Right. What more does he want than for us yes. to come to his feet and say, trying to understand this and trying to get to know you better? So I think it, this tension is super righteous. I yes, think it's yes. Exactly what the Christian life is all about. It's <laughs> to... It. Come on. And it's about Yes, is it more important for my friend who I'm arguing and debating the the bejesus out of that God created in the 6 literal days and look at all the information that I have that supports that and at the very least I can fall back on, well, he's an amazing God that created an old earth or is it more important to us to enter into a God who is the creator and to know him as creator and to rest in that place and engage with a God who is the creator God and the faithful God to his promises? Which one would I much rather have my friend grasp? Which one would I rather grasp in my own life? That, yep, yeah, six days, boom. Isn't he awesome? Creator. Oh my gosh, I received this. That you created with order. I mean, it was formless and void. He kind of created generally, and then he filled and structured specifically. If you look at the creation parallels of how he created, compare day one to day four, and then day two to day five, day three to day six, and go through that and just see, Lord, this is so much greater. The story that you are telling me, the meaning, the purpose with which you in Moses is writing to me right now is so much greater than six literal days or not? Fast forward, we're going to get a little bit into Jonah here. We're pretty much done with today. Perfect. We're going to into Jonah next week. <laughs> but we leave with this question: Is the purpose the purpose of writing Jonah that he was swallowed by a fish and actually lived and was spewed up on the ground? I'm going to say no right now. Because if we see the text and the authority, and that's not up there anymore. The authority is in the text, but not in the meaning. What does the story mean? Who wrote Jonah? Do you guys know that one? It doesn't say. The rest of those minor prophets, they were written in first person. The word of the Lord came to Obadiah, and I said, mur, 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 to these people, Jonah, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it's all in second person, talking about a story about some guy named Jonah. Oh my gosh. This could be a story that has a meaning greater than the fact that he was eaten by a fish or not. The sign of Jonah that Jesus refers to could be something a little bit greater. I mean, not that three days and three nights in a fish isn't a super, super cool thing. But that's chapter two. What about chapter one, three, and four in the book of Jonah? I mean, there is so much to go into. So next week, we're going to answer some of these questions. um, Hopefully seeing, understanding, sharing, responding. Asking the questions of Jonah. Who's writing? Who's he writing to? Where are they writing from? And then discuss how they're writing. Um, scripturally, there's narrative, poetry, and discourse. We're going to jump all into this, and we're going to apply hermeneutical rules and understanding so that hopefully by the end of this month, um, we will be able to walk out of here and say, you know what Jonah's saying? is this, and it is awesome. You know what he's not saying? That he was actually eaten by a fish or not? Like, that could be. I'm not saying he's not. Could God create in six or old days? Oh, yeah, totally. But if we see the text but miss the meaning... If we, if we understand the story but completely miss why it was written, well, what happened? Well, yeah, there was literally a wooden boy named Pinocchio, and his nose grew when he lied, and he, like, yes, but why did the author of Pinocchio write the story in the first place? Was he inspired in some way? I have a message. I have a meaning that I'm trying to relay to you. And you know how I'm going to tell that? Through story. And if we see the story but miss the meaning, we're missing maybe the whole part of why it was being written in the first place. Well done, class. Day one. We'll see you the next three weeks. You guys have about a half an hour. There's snacks and coffee and stuff still. Thank you for joining. Um, Tell your friends. Great conversation. Bless you, bless you.